0: Good
1: morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever you are. Thanks for joining me on today's show, where we will explore our field of dreams, reimagining the future. My first guests are Karen Cerullo and Janet Ruon. They both specialize in cultural sociology and social inequality. Their work has been widely quoted in the press, including venues such as Le Monde, MyCentralJersey.com, The New York Daily News, The New Republic, The New York Times. NewJersey.com, Psychology Today, The Post Courier, and more. Their book is Dreams of a Lifetime, How We Imagine Our Future. Ladies, thank you for joining me on the show today. I am super excited to speak with you about this subject.
2: Thank Thanks for having us. Thanks. Really nice to have a chance to have this conversation.
1: Oh, well, I, I think this is an area that many of us minimize because we think that our dreams our aspirations and hopes are so similar and your research really takes a deep dive into this subject matter
3: well you know we found that people thought about dreams for the future in two different ways either people assumed that everybody was unique and how they saw their future and what they dreamed about or on the other side of the scale we found that people thought, well, everybody in the US just subscribes to the American dream. And as we went about doing this study, we found that really things are a little bit in the middle of those two extremes, that there is a lot of patterning to dreams, that there are multiple themes, though they're limited, and um, that who people are, meaning their background, their social class, their race, their gender, their age, etc., had a big impact on the dreams people talk to us about, and and the themes that drove their dreams for the future.
1: I have a question about the bigness of dreams and how that is affected by who we are, what our influences are.
2: Well, well, <laughs> I'm well, Sorry, I'm going to just jump in quickly and say that one of our findings that uh, concerns us is that the bigness gets, gets uh, reduced by some social statuses. And that seems to me to be a shame. Uh, in our country, we teach people from a very early age to dream, but we also teach them to dream big But the truth is some people's dreams are much bigger than others. And we're a little concerned about that. Yeah, I think
3: some of the things that influence just how big you do dream are your class. For example, those who are in middle and wealthier classes have bigger dreams and more dreams than people who are in the lower class. Uh, Your race influences it. People who are Asian or white and even to uh, the majority of uh, African Americans, they are able to dream bigger than Latinx people. Um, men and women, you know, we found these kinds of differences. Um, men uh, tend to dream about things that are stereotypically masculine, like having big adventures or being football stars or having lots of fame, wealth, and fortune. And we found that women tend to dream in ways that are corresponding to a traditional female role. They dream about family, either having one or reuniting one or keeping it together. And they dream a lot about self-image, in particular, the way they look.
1: Thinner it, thighs, bigger breasts, this, yeah, <laughs> those kinds exactly. of things. Yeah. yeah.
2: And again, I'd like to jump in because I think one of the st- uh, striking differences is that both the lower class And the upper class identify career i mean identify dreams that we put into the theme of career oriented but career for the lower class means getting a job and making a living career dreams for the upper class are a series of ever improving steps improve their job titles get the bigger office space Become, uh, ex- you know, much more wealthy by advancing in salary. So that those are striking differences.
1: What strikes me is when you look at different class structures and dreams is that those that don't have as much are dreaming about basic needs that perhaps those who have more take for granted.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. Again, another finding that I think we need to reflect on is that the lower class did not give us adventure dreams.
1: Yeah, survival I, dreams maybe. Yeah,
2: I I don't think that's any accident that they don't really have time or the resources to dream in terms of adventures. And on the other hand, the other end, the upper class did not report fame, wealth and power dreams. And we, we have to speculate. It's because those things are already part of their stockpile. Yeah. So
1: when you say stockpile, you mean accessible?
2: Yeah, and, yeah. and already achieved in yeah. many cases, that they have that wealth and power.
1: I mean, I think I know the answer, but I want to hear, in your words, why the study of dreams of the future? I mean, from a sociological perspective, it is important to understand this
3: we felt that you know there's been lots of sociological and psychological studies about people's you know aspirations and that typically revolves around what they you know how much education they want or um how they're going to go about getting a job and there's been some even done on hope but those things seem to be grounded always in reality. You get sick and you hope that you'll recover. You meet someone that you love and you hope that you'll have a lifelong relationship. But we felt in talking to people that dreams were a very different beast. They really told us something about the person's core identity, what they, you know, where they want to belong, where they want to land in life, what life paths they would take if no obstacles existed.
1: No, please go on. I'm, I'm sighing and smiling and shaking my head. Yes.
2: Kara, <laughs> tell the story about your radio, hearing the radio program. Well, you know, this, this whole study
3: started when I was running errands on uh, Christmas Eve for the holiday. And uh, I was listening to a talk radio station and the host asked, if you knew you couldn't fail, what would you do? And, you know, he said his board just lit up. And I was mesmerized by listening to all these call-ins talk about all the different things that people wished they could do, uh, wished they could be, and so forth. And so uh, I started asking people myself. I first asked Jan that same question. Uh, And I believe she told me that she wanted to be the next Oprah, and live (laughs) at the beach. Absolutely. Uh, And uh, then we, you know, we went home for Christmas, and we started asking our family and friends. And you know, Jan, I love the story about your mother.
2: My my ninety year old mother, my family brothers sisters were around the table, and often at our holiday tables, we would divide into political camps, and the conversation wouldn't be all that (laughs) free-flowing. Sounds familiar. (laughs) When I asked this question, everybody at the table jumped in. Everybody was so quick to identify their dreams. And I was shocked to hear my mother say she wanted to be a lounge singer. She was in her 90s or approaching 90, and I had never heard that from her before, One of my brothers wanted to be president of the United States. He couldn't believe more of us weren't going there. Yet my other brother, older than the presidential hopeful, wanted to be a star pitcher for the New York Yankees. (laughs) I never again knew these things about them.
1: And maybe that is the fun part of asking the question, right? You learn a little bit about the inner life you know, our inner lives that, you know, maybe uh, the majority of us won't be Oprah, won't be president, won't be a football star, but yet it's revelatory. Very much so. And
3: I think, you know, inner life is a a great phrase for it because we really found that people thought this was such an important thing to do, to dream about the future. Um, Even if they thought their dreams wouldn't come true, they just thought that living that inner life was so important. For some people, it was comforting. For some people, it was exciting. For some people, it was motivating. But they felt it was an important thing to do. And they felt that it always kind of grounded them and who they really were inside and kind of reminded them uh, of what they wanted out of life. So that even if they didn't uh, become the star pitcher for the New York Yankees, there was something about that role that really told them, reminded them about what they were looking for in life.
1: I love this. And I, I want to explore the difference between dreams, aspirations, and hopes. You touched upon hopes, you know, sort of the hopefulness, understanding what is and hoping for something more or better.
3: Yeah. We think that dreams are more like a fantasy. They don't necessarily have to be grounded in reality, whereas aspirations and hopes generally are. These are things that are living in our mind and that we go into ourselves and inhabit at different points in time. If we need some inspiration, if we need some comfort, if we need to escape, whatever it might be. But they are not necessarily rooted in reality. Um, you know, I think about some of the people we talked to over the course of our study, the many months of our study. Um, uh, there was a young guy we interviewed who um, absolutely his dream was to start a railroad. And we were talking to him about how difficult that would be, <laughs> and, you know, how, what challenges railroads face. But this was something that in his heart he felt sure he could do. He didn't want to hear that it might be impossible. You know, he said, even if it has to be a little junket from one city to the to the next, um, I'm gonna do this. And it makes me feel good because I love trains and I, I know I would be doing something I love to do. So it gives people this chance to explore themselves in a way that, other aspirations or hopes that are tied to what your day-to-day living is all about, they don't really give you that same opportunity.
1: I love this because it's—it's it's, these are thought experiments that make us feel good about ourselves and life.
3: Right. And they also are insightful. They yeah. keep reminding us of who we are and they even allow us to dig deeper into, into who we are.
2: I, I think another uh, revealing finding we had, were the number of people that said dreaming was essential to life, essential in suggesting that life would not be worth living if you didn't dream. And the, the other, uh, finding that was revealing for me anyhow was the number of folks who said they would, if they could pass their dreams on to children or to loved ones. And I think, I think, uh, Some said, no, I would want them to be free to choose their own. But I think they were really telling us about passing on the uh, need to dream and making sure their kids do it.
3: One of the things that stories that comes to mind when we talk about how essential it is, I was watching the news one night and uh, a reporter was in the Ukraine um, talking to people who were uh Ukrainians resisting the the onslaught in, in their country. And in the midst of that interview, uh, the Ukrainian asked the reporter about the Super Bowl. Wanted, had all kinds <laughs> of questions about the Super Bowl. And uh, after, you know, posing some questions, told the reporter that it's his dream to go to the Super Bowl one day and that he is sure he's going to do it no matter what it takes He's going to get to the Super Bowl. And, you know, to us, it just lit up uh, for us because it was, again, showing how important it is, even in the midst of your world falling apart, to have dreams about something.
1: Let's take a pause. And when we come back, we will continue the conversation with professors Karen A. Cerullo and Janet M. Ruan. We're talking about dreams of a lifetime. How Who We Are Shapes How We Imagine Our Future. To learn more about the professors, please go to sociology.rutgers.edu under faculty for Karen A. Cerullo and montclair.edu slash sociology under staff, faculty and staff for Janet M. Ruan. Here comes the pause. We'll be right back. And that is a real thing. Hang on just a second here. Before we pause, I want to remind everyone how joyful good hair days make us feel. Winter is coming and the holidays will be upon us soon enough. These days, I'm preparing my hair for the cold days ahead with some extra TLC from Whey Hair Care Products. I'm a huge fan of Way's best-selling leave-in conditioner that helps manage frizz, tangles, flyaways, and breakage for all types of hair, and the hard-working detox shampoo that cleanses hair of product buildup, hard water deposits, dirt oil, and other impurities. And it's safe for all hair types, including color-treated, keratin-treated, and Brazilian blowouts. In fact, this holiday season, I'm gifting Ways $40 Better Together Kit to everyone on my list. This includes full-size bottles of leave-in conditioner and detox shampoo and is a great introduction to this awesome product line. My tribe is going to love it because sharing is caring, and these products really work. Trust me, I've been a happy consumer for years. Way offers a complete line of products for all hair types that promote fuller looking, healthier feeling, and happier tresses from the outside in and from the inside out because good hair care demands more than just styling. All Way products are deliciously scented and promote healthy hair that looks and feels soft shiny and bouncy way offers everything you need to keep your lovely locks healthy strong and protected from the elements high heat styling tools and is color safe and cruelty free discover all the ways to share joy this holiday season go to t h e o u a i.com and use code hh to get 15% off your entire purchase that's 15% off your entire order at t h e O U A I dot com, code HH. Now let's take that pause. We'll be right back.
0: To learn more about cultivating sustainable well being at home and the office, visit harvestinghappiness.com dot com and explore Lisa's experiential on site brain fitness workshops, corporate programming, and speaking engagement services.
1: And we're back continuing the conversation with professors Karen Cerullo and Janet Ruan. We're talking about our field of dreams, reimagining the future. Let's get back to the discussion. We're talking about their book, Dreams of a Lifetime, How We Imagine Our Future. And that really is related to who we are and our own field of dreams, our own uh, inner lives and dreams, hopes, aspirations, and the, that, that that nugget that we all hold onto of, of who we would like to be if time and money weren't an issue. I think that's what I think about when dreaming.
2: Yes, we're on the same page. <laughs> yeah.
1: You know, if time and money weren't an issue, I just like want to throw that out there that I'd like to sing like Christina Aguilera. And why that is such a problem is I can't carry a tune and my family shushes me.
2: <laughs> right. Well, I wouldn't say my mother had a pleasant voice, but I never would have thought that uh lounge singing was in her uh wheelhouse either but
1: I'm with your mom though, like there is something about that maybe maybe what that represents is that freedom of total self expression.
3: Yeah. And I, you know, I think that's, again, what makes dreams fantastical rather than necessarily very realistic, because, you know, if you really wanted to be a lounge singer, you would probably be uh, training. You'd probably be learning repertoire. You'd be maybe going to some open mic nights to get some experience. And um, but when you're dreaming about it, you're just thinking about being the person who walks into the room and everybody wants to see and hear you. You're embraced by the community. You're not thinking of, you know, uh, the uh, guy who's had too much to drink and is cat- hackling. And uh, you're not thinking about the secondhand smoke you're breathing in. You're not even thinking about the boredom that maybe comes in by doing the same sets night after night. Um, you're thinking about being that focal point of attention and being embraced and beloved by an audience.
1: And maybe that also taps into our self-esteem, right? When we're in that dream state of imagining ourselves as the lounge singer or Christina Aguilera, you know, we're in our full power, right? There's no self-doubt.
2: We have uh, the theme of improvement was identified as one of the top two dreams for both the lower class and the upper class respondents. Ah. But to your point, about self-esteem, I think. Um, improvement for the lower class was focused on improving themselves. Nice. Improvement, when talked about by the upper class, were improving, were the dreams were about improving the world around them.
1: You know, wow. Making
2: environmental improvements, yeah. improvements to their workplace. Uh, so again, I think that's insightful. Yes,
1: very, very, very insightful. Tell us a few more stories of people's dreams.
3: Well, one of the things we were struck by, as I uh, mentioned quickly before, we started interviewing people in the third and fourth grade. We thought that was the youngest we could go and still have people understand what a dream was. And we went all the way up to people in their 80s. We were struck in particular about the difference in the dreams between third graders and fourth graders. Something happened when those kids become 10 years old that makes them a little bit more tied to the real world. So our third graders were telling us things like, I'd like to own a giraffe. I dream of owning a giraffe or I dream of flying, or I dream of being able to hold my breath forever underwater, these kinds of things. But kids get to the fourth grade and they're a little bit more career oriented. Um, you know, we get the baseball players and we get the um uh, graphic designers and computer game designers, and we get fashion designers or people who want to be doctors and cure a disease. There was a real jump there that we thought was interesting because it seems that once kids got into the fourth grade and you know they were hitting that sort of ten-year-old mark, that they really kind of got drawn into the things that society yeah. values in a way that the smaller kids um, did not.
1: That's fascinating. Uh, um,
3: And even when the dreams were a little fantastical, we had one kid who said um, that he'd uh, like to win uh, a million dollars and then double it to a billion dollars and then buy stuff. And I said to him, uh, what would you like to buy? And he said, the Eiffel Tower. Ah. And so, well, you know, that's fantastical in in many ways, but it's kind of the capitalist (laughs) way of thinking. So he was sort of in the ballpark already.
2: Well, and the other uh, point that struck us in the past few weeks, we're hearing about the dreams of some of the victims from the shooting in Texas. Yes. And it there were fourth graders and that struck us that we heard about a little girl that was dreaming of becoming an attorney, and another little girl saying she wanted to be a marine biologist. And again, we thought, well, we're we're seeing that. We saw that that there was this this uh, p- planting their feet in sort of their reality of um, careers which is a huge thing in our American culture, but getting on with with the business of uh, sort of a realistic future.
1: Hmm. Getting on with the business, yeah, that it became very concrete versus uh, more ephemeral and, you know, wish list.
3: Yep. We were very um, surprised and pleased to hear some of the dreams of the senior citizens. We had uh, one fellow who wanted to um, raft, uh, you know, whitewater rafting uh, in, uh, you know, some of the bigger rivers uh, in the U.S., uh, real challenging rivers. Uh, a woman who wanted a motorcycle across country with her daughter Um so there was no shortage of dreams, uh, even among people who were sort of nearing the finish line in terms of their lives. They were um, actually the people who were most excited, the most uh, talkative of all of the
2: groups that we spoke with um, and, and, and had big, big dreams. And I think they were those closer to the end of life. Those that was the group that was absolutely insistent that dreaming was essential. Yeah. Uh, it, it it was uh, really quite nice and refreshing and uh, gave us a, a jolt of optimism to hear from uh, our seniors in the study.
1: We care for uh, a family elder in our home. She's 97. She's nearing the end of her life as we record this. And last year, she said, I want to go to the mountains. I want to go to the Alps. She's from Austria. And we felt that taking her to Austria would be a bigger trip than she could handle. But we did take her to Utah and we took her to the mountains and set her up there. We were there for 10 days and she felt like we had made her dream come true. And it was so cool that at 96, nice. you know, great.
2: Yep. Yeah, that's Wonderful. really lovely.
1: Yeah.
3: One of the other things we were surprised about was that there were um, there was one group. So we we talk about them as um, early midlife. And these are people who have been married for a few years, have started a family. They maybe have children who are, you know, uh, small. And these were people who actually sort of put their dreams, put a pause on dreaming. And when we talked to them about it, they said, you know, I, going into the study, I thought, oh, these are people who are going to tell us about dreams they have for their children's lives. But no, no. Um, they told us they really thought dreaming was a luxury at that time, that they had to put all their energies into raising their children and making sure their children were safe and were on the right path and that they had to put their dreams on pause for a a period of time. So that was the one group who did the least amount of dreaming. And uh, we were a bit surprised by that.
1: And it's interesting because when you look at studies that are done on happiness and people report they're the happiest points in their lives. Usually those child rearing years are the least happy. I'm thinking of that U-curve study where it's sort of Mm -hmm. the the bottom is the bottom, you know, when you're, when you're really focusing a lot of time on child rearing and getting the kids to where they need to be, that the logistics are so heavy that there is no time for happiness. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Right. So it's interesting that it corresponds. I want to just talk a little bit about Human happiness and dreaming, and the correlation between the two—that when we think of our dreams, does it increase our sense of well-being?
2: It's a great question, and one we would love to uh, continue this <laughs> next <study> book <laughs> so that we can we can incorporate it. But um, you know, many many people did uh, indicate that.
3: Um, Dreaming was their happy place. i'm um, I'm thinking in particular of a one high school uh, woman mm-hmm. whose dream was to learn all the languages of the world. And uh, oh wow. She had already started, I think she spoke five languages when we uh, interviewed her. And she told us that when she gets depressed or when she feels down, um, that she'll think about that dream. And then she will go out and, like, rent a film that's in a language she doesn't understand and listen to that language and try to pick up some phrases uh, or learn a bit of it. And that that it makes her feel happy again, that she's back on track. Um, So I think there are a number of people in our study who suggested that um, they went to their dreams when they wanted to feel happier or when they wanted to be comforted or consoled.
2: Yeah. yeah and let let me then jump in and, and think about the one group that we found to have the most trouble dreaming and to have dreams that were really vague and and they found trouble articulating them, were the unemployed. And uh, again, in our work oriented culture, it wasn't hard for us to understand that being without work, being let go from work, uh, really had a, a dash, put a uh, squash on people's ability to dream. I can't imagine my having again some family members who went through this uh, long term unemployment. It just sucks the life and I think happiness out of you.
1: It's interesting that you mention this. I am working with a family in Afghanistan that I've been trying to help evacuate since the fall of the country last August, and one of the areas that I talk about with these young women is finding ways to grow in the middle of their adversity so they don't lose their dreams, you know, so taking taking classes because they still have internet, they still do have access to the world, and some of these amazing projects that these young women have taken up, you know, whether it's a, a language or learning yoga, or learning to teach meditation to other girls so they can help manage their stress and their depression. So I think that the uh, the flip side is that the adversity can also be uh, a very fertile ground for nourishing some of these dreams.
3: Yes, and you know I, I think we found that in particular among people who were health challenged, who had had very difficult diagnoses, some of their dreams were so big and. They were so uh, effervescent when they talked to us about them um, that, uh, you know, we really felt something had grown in them by facing uh, a life-threatening disease uh, head on. And I would say even the same for some of the people we talked to who were displaced by natural disasters, hurricanes and such. Um they were um, so interested, you know, their dreams were so often philanthropic. They wanted to open a center where others who have faced their adversity, where they could help them, um, you know, and they felt excited by that. Or they wanted to join uh, a police force so that they would be called upon in disasters to help people or become firemen or something like that. You know, there, there was something about adversity that really um, brought them into that dream uh,
2: vision and, and, you know, we, um, in the very final chapter of our book, we talk about how we might help folks or how at least we should think about helping individuals uh, really expand their dreams and dream perhaps bigger. And uh, we, we reflect on the point that many times when students start college, there's a need for remedial courses in math, for instance. And they just take classes that will help them get up to speed and help them be a little more competitive and and able to survive and and graduate from college. And it started us thinking about perhaps uh, doing remedial work with dreamers to make sure that they understood that that uh, steps were needed as you're taking with the family you're helping Um, that that that's part of what we hope will be a takeaway from the book that we might need to sit and talk and work with individuals to uh, encourage them, not only to get a job and keep that job, but to someday want to run the company and how you get there.
1: Yeah, I I see where you're going with this Uh, kind of like a dream incubator.
2: Yep. <laughs> <laughs> where you can
1: help people n- nourish those dreams, grow those dreams, receive mentoring um, and way showing like how to get there. Right. Right. Exactly. I love this. Can I come? <laughs> 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 I, I promise not to sing. I'll just talk about it. <laughs>
2: <laughs> but we could probably use some of your uh, insights and wisdom. So, yes, you can come. <laughs> oh, I,
1: I, I'll show up because I, what I love about what this is about is about sort of the transcendence and transformation of our stories, the outward stories merged with that inner life, you know, and the yeah. the, the pilot light of the human spirit. That's a great way of putting it. You know, and how do, how do we ignite that in ourselves and in others so we can shine.
2: Yeah. And be the bright stars in, of our dreams.
1: Yeah. To of be th- bright dreams. Yes. Yes. To have bright dreams and, and live them to make them reality. I love that. We're talking about dreams of a lifetime, how who we are shapes how we imagine our future. My guests today have been professors Karen A. Cerullo and Janet M. Ruan. To learn more, you can go to Rutgers.edu and find Karen A. Cerullo there. You can go to Montclair.edu in the sociology department and find Janet Ruan there in faculty and staff. Ladies, thank you so much for sharing your book and your dream research with us. It's our pleasure. Absolutely. Thank you very much. Oh, thank you. Let's take a quick pause. We'll be right back. This episode was recorded while on the road, and you know what that means imperfect sound, imperfect technology, but still that perfect health consciously prepared brain food. And we're back. We're continuing the conversation about our field of dreams, reimagining the future. My next guest is Michael Clinton. Michael Clinton is the former president and publishing director at Hearst Magazines and is currently special media advisor to the Hearst Corporation's CEO. An author, photographer, avid traveler, and adventurer. He believes that everyone should strive to live the fullest life possible, especially in the second half. Michael Clinton holds two master's degrees and he is in the house today. Hi, Michael.
4: Hi there. So great to be with you. Thank you so much for that nice introduction.
1: Oh, well, thanks. Thanks <laughs> for being here and thanks for putting into words something that many of us are feeling as we sort of dance in the the middle juicy part of life. Talk about your experience, your
4: journey to this place of roaring. Well, you know, one of the things that I, um, I realized as we are getting into that midpoint in our life is that we've been taught that we're supposed to wind down We've been taught that this was the long slide. We've been taught that by our culture, by our government policies, by our corporations. And you know what I came to realize is that if you're 50 and healthy, you have a really good shot of living to be 90. And so you have a good opportunity to wind up, to do a lot of things in the second half of your life that you may put on the shelf, you may have forgotten about. You can become an entrepreneur, you can ignite some new passions, you can go take a second career. I mean, it is a long arc and we're going to be breaking up what was the previously conceived life cycles. So it's all about winding up.
1: I like this, winding up. Yes, as many people think that as we move into sunset careers, right, that we're winding down, and what you're suggesting, and many of us are experiencing, is the opposite, you know, that we're catapulting ourselves to new levels of curiosity and action.
4: Yeah, I mean, you know, for sure, one of the things that we take our cues from are a lot of the words and the images and the things that are put out there in the in in the culture at large, which um fight fight against us in terms of the possibilities that we have. I think you know that the um, and these are predominantly boomers, and you know how boomers are redefining everything. And so I, I like to say we're not getting older, but we're living longer. I like to say that 65 is not. The new 45. I like to say that 65 is the new 65. And <laughs> we are re- we are redefining. I, you know, I interviewed 40 amazing people in this book. I call them the reimagineers. They're the ones who are identifying 70 as the new 70, dynamic, active, tech savvy, involved, engaged. And you know, it is a good reminder that there is a very, very different script that is there. Uh, and that we can all create a new kind of script for ourselves individually and for our, for our uh, cohort, if you will.
1: Well, I think one of the, the benefits of aging is street cred, you know? like mm. I, I mm. think in, in this part of life, and I don't know if that's your experience, that there's a, a, a sort of empirical knowledge of being older and a little bit wiser. And so it automatically gives you a little bit more gravitas in your field.
4: Yeah, no question. I mean, as as you mentioned, I've spent a very long magazine publishing career. Had the great pleasure of launching Oprah's magazine with our team, and and HETV and Food Network, and we have Esquire and Town and Country and Good Housekeeping, and so it's it was a really interesting, um, wonderful career. And the thing that I like to say is, that we learn in our business; it's all about editing. And so as you get that wisdom and that gravitas that you mentioned, it really is uh, editing has really become a great skill because we take the extraneous things out of our lives and we nurture and develop the things that we really want to do with our time, the people we want to be with, the ways that we're spending our days. And a lot of that comes from the, the editing process of having already lived 50 years and knowing what we don't like and what we do like. And so, you know, yeah, it's a great moment to be able to, to pivot into the next.
1: And let's talk a little bit about um, this process and resources. You know, not everybody has the luxury of being able to bounce from one career to no career and just being an adventurer and explorer, or maybe the resources to move from one job that they've had for decades to something else freely. And I think what your book suggests, I think what Roar suggests is this level of passion in regardless of what you choose to do or are able to do.
4: Yeah, it's a really great point. One of the things that that I learned with all these interviews and the research that I did is that you know people oftentimes say, well, I don't have the time and I don't have the money. And time is what we create for ourselves. And what I learned is there's an enormous amount of uh, possibilities in terms of Pellgrams and federal grants and a source called Scholarship Owl and places where people who are at midlife can get resources to completely retool. What, one of my favorite interviews was Stephanie, uh, who was a 53-year-old. She had been a book editor her entire career, and at 53, she decided that she was going to become a doctor. Now, a medical doctor. Wow. Yeah. Good for her. Yeah. Now, you know what that journey's like. (laughs) So, but to her credit, not only did she find a path and she tells her story, but she got all her education paid for by doing the homework um, of where she could get grants and so forth. And she's in her early sixties now and she's a doctor. And she said, you know what? You know, I'll be a doctor for 20 years or more, and that'll be a really fulfilling career. So we have to we have to be thinking about second and third careers, not the way we thought about our first career, but, you know, as really a passion that was going to give us fulfillment. And, and as you know all, all too well, fulfillment and satisfaction is really what is the road to, to happiness. So your podcast, Harvesting Happiness, to me, it's all about <laughs> finding the things to fulfill you and satisfy you. And that's how you do the harvest.
1: I, I, obviously, I agree and also what i have found with what you describe is that that in of itself the satisfaction from doing the good work becomes its own kind of currency it's very sustaining doesn't pay the mortgage of course but it does fulfill us on a really soulful level
4: yeah i think you know one of the great things about being at midpoint is that you do have a perspective on that life has ups and life has downs. And while we want to pursue the moments of being happy, we know that they're cyclical. We know that they, you know, there are times when things aren't great and times when things are better. And I did a great interview with um, a psychologist, and she talks about this very topic. Um, this, this um, thing that also happens with people in mid midlife is they get they can get into negative self-talk. Um, because, you know, I should have done this and I should have done that and I might have done this and I might have done that. But we have to, you know, move on from that. We did a survey in the book. We had 630 respondents about national survey. And one of the questions we asked is if you could redo something in your past, uh, would you? And a very high number, 76 percent said yes. Um, One of the biggest response is the number one response, actually, which also created the most um, write-in response on the the survey was I would have, um, I would rethink my marriage and or the person that I married, which I thought was really pretty stunning. Um, But if you think about it, you know, if you're 55 or 60 and you got married when you were 25, you know, you may be a very different person now. I mean, my my own mother at 64 asked my father uh, for a divorce after 40 years of marriage, and it was just that she had spun off into a very different kind of life that she wanted to live versus my dad. And she went on and lived that life for another 23 years before we lost her. Um, And she, you know, when she died peacefully in her sleep, but very happy that she lived a life for 20 some years that was her her image of what she wanted to do.
1: That that level of authenticity, right? That we get mm-hmm. to be who who we are. But you know, you often don't discover that until you're in that ripe, juicy midpoint either. You don't really know who you are.
4: So, so true. You know, I, going back to words, um, I just don't like the word midlife crisis. I like the word midlife awakening.
1: Yes. Because,
4: <laughs> yeah, I mean, you do, to your point, you do discover... You know, you've lived a good chunk of time and you do know who you are and what you want. And you want to feel empowered to make the choices for a new direction, whether that's work or it's lifestyle or it's partners or whatever. And being, you know, awoken if that's a word, is that a word? Awakened? Awakened. Awakened. (laughs) You know, you, (laughs) yeah, you know, you, you can make those (laughs) (laughs) decisions.
1: Well, and I think what's interesting, I was having this conversation with my mother who is in her late seventies and a younger girlfriend of mine who's in her late forties, separate conversations about the very same thing about sort of reevaluating where one is in in space and time. And you know, when we're younger, for many of us the push is the partnership, right? To find the one, the person with whom you make your life. And then for some, and I'm talking about my myself in this category, you get to a certain point in life where, you know, I I adore my partner. He is the apple of my eye and the center of my world in many ways. But if circumstances were to change, would I necessarily pursue partnership in the second half of life? When life is so full with all these other things, friendships, relationships, connection, children, hopefully grandchildren, you know, you you follow where I'm going with this?
4: Yeah, yeah, for for sure. I mean, I, I, you know, I live in New York City where there um, are a lot of people who are in this this world that you you describe um, women who, you know, never had children and didn't want children. Some are married, some aren't. Same with men. And I think that you know there are choices that we can now have. That if we want to be partnered, we can be. If we don't, we don't have to be. We surround ourselves with friends and the things that fulfill us. And I think there are certainly it depends on where you live, but there are lots and lots of uh, those kinds of circles in New York, as you probably as you probably know. And here's the thing that's so interesting. <clears throat> One of my favorite stories, also in the book, I was listening to an NPR interview. She was, he was 104 and she was a hundred ish, maybe 101. (laughs) They were a new couple and she, yeah, she basically said, well, I wake up every day and I roll over to see if he's still breathing. And if he is, I know we're going to have another day together. (laughs) And I think, I think that's great, but I think there's always the possibilities of, you know, things to enter your life, and you have to be open to them. So here's a couple in their hundreds, (laughs) who were open to, you know, romance, if you will. And so you have to be open to things, because um, that's the beauty of the universe is they bring things is it brings things to us.
1: I love that. Let's take a pause. We'll be right back. We are going to continue the conversation with my guest today, Michael Clinton. He is the author of Roar Into the Second Half of Your Life Before It's Too Late. To learn more, please visit roarbymichaelclinton.com, on Twitter at M.A. Clinton, on Facebook, Roar by Michael Clinton, and on Instagram, Roar Michael Clinton. Here comes the pause. We'll be right back, and that is an absolute guarantee.
0: Who says money can't buy happiness? Whether you are a skeptic or seeker, check out Lisa's new book, Are We Happy Yet? 8 keys to unlocking a joyful life, a boot camp manual for greater emotional fitness, is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and harvestinghappiness.com. Here's a truth bomb. Emotions are contagious, and happiness is a universally desired state. But we tend to forget that we all have the freedom to be happy or the liberty to be miserable each day, regardless of external circumstances. Explore the journey of human happiness, how to find it and keep it, with Lisa's documentary film, H-Factor. Where is your heart? Visit HarvestingHappiness.com to learn more.
1: What is, what is your heart? This episode was recorded while on the road. And you know what that means? Imperfect sound, imperfect technology, but still that perfect health-consciously prepared brain food. And we're back continuing the conversation with my guest today, Michael Clinton. We're talking about our field of dreams, reimagining the future. Let's get back to the conversation. Michael, let's just jump right into some of the statistics about our aging U.S. population because you 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 shared something during the break that I think is really important, and we should we should listen up.
4: Yeah, I think the thing that is really to take a pause and think about this: thirty four percent of the U.S. population right now is over fifty. Every day, ten thousand Americans turn sixty five. In the year twenty thirty one in five Americans will be 65 and over. And that is creating an enormous new sensibility and group of people in the country in terms of behavior, interests, spending power of which they have an enormous amount. That group has $15 trillion in spending power, which is double that what it was 10 years ago. And I might add, they will have the largest transfer generational wealth in the history of the world over 60 trillion dollars in assets. So of course, not everyone has the good fortune of having so many of these these assets in terms of ownership, but many many will. And the, the redefinition of how people are going to choose to live their lives in 50 plus are going to be bountiful. I, you know I'll give you an example. The Kaufman Foundation in Kansas City, um, 26% of entrepreneurs in this country are now 55 to 64 as people are starting new businesses after their first career. There are um, a dozen or more universities that have midlife transition programs, everyone from Harvard to the University of Minnesota to help people along. I, I personally went back to Columbia University in my 60s and got a master's degree. Um, which was a fascinating experience to go through. Although I have to re- admit, taking exams and quizzes was not <laughs> something that <laughs> I was thinking about before I did it. But you know, I was. You know, there's a, this lifelong learning issue, and it, it is really critical to, to keep ourselves engaged. And then I'll give you one one more stat since you asked. Um, we have in this country about eighty nine thousand centenarians. People who are a hundred years or older. Wow. Yeah. And there will be, by 2060, almost 600,000. And by the year 2100, of which those babies have been born, the projection is there will be over 5 million Americans who will be living the 100-year life. So think about that in terms of how everything is going to change as people move into their 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, and beyond. It's going to become really a movement of change that will start now and continue on, you know, well into, you know, the decades ahead?
1: Well, I think you touch upon something interesting about the notion of retirement. I think that Mm. the tide is changing. You know, there's, there's no one in my peer group, whether they can afford it or not, who would even entertain retirement in terms of like you know, playing golf every day or playing tennis every day that this phase of life is a very you know productive one where they're out in the world being of service, being of use to others in one form or another, whether it's creatively based or action based. So I think that that's another trend that that retirement is is actually, um a, a recipe for distress for some like the idea of sitting at home or sitting on the golf course is more frightening <laughs> than anything else
4: yeah i've been going around the country giving talks some live some virtual and i think there's a theme that is emerging very much touching on what you suggest and that is you know people re- quote retire which i to me is a very toxic word which i'll get back to in a minute Um, that people say, well, for the first year or so, you know, I'm like, woohoo, I'm free. I can do this. I can do that. Now we have just, you know, had 18 months of pandemic and we're still not completely out of it. So it put a cramp on some style, but most people after a year or two of it sort of stop and say, "Um, I'm 65. I can't do this for the rest of my life, which might be another 25 years. So the aha moment is occurring. And so many people have brought this up to me, uh, in these various, you know, talks and forums and so forth. And, um, the thing that I will say is that I like the word refire as opposed to retire in, in whatever way you choose to do it. Um, because there is going to be, you know, an enormous amount of interest to being engaged and being relevant and being involved and there are so many different directions people can take. So the the, the goal of the book um, was to really put a put a big spotlight on this, not only with the stories, but with a lot of tools and resources and thoughts about how one can go about doing it. So I, I sort of view it as a um, you know a treatise about second half second half living.
1: I love it. I am right there with you. I uh, I'm always looking for ways to learn new things and engage differently in the world in a multi-generational way you know i think that is another thing that has uh, become very clear at, at this phase of life that we could go either way we can go up or down
2: <laughs> with the yeah. age
1: groups that we fit in with you know and uh, that's very liberating right the, the sort of the rules are no longer the rules
4: they're new rules yeah i think yeah for for sure and I think we need to blow up a lot of things that um no longer relevant to us. I'll give you one great example. The there was a piece in the New York Times a few weeks ago about some developers who were creating multi-generational housing instead of this ghettoization of let's put all the 60 plus year olds in this one place. Yeah. And you know that to me is not a great solution. In in whatever whatever form it is, it may have been a solution. It, it may have been a good solution when the the life expectancy was 60, which was in the 1940s, early 60s. But what happens is if you move into that kind of place in your in your early 60s, you know, and you're gonna live to be 90, you're gonna be very cordoned off by a lot of wonderful stimulation you could have from younger generations and families with children and all the above. And these developers are creating a new, a new format. The other thing is, I think a lot of people, especially in this generation, want will want to age at home. And with medical technology and AI and you know new caring services, people will be able to do that as opposed to having to be moved into facilities that is sort of, um, you know, not the most desirable in terms of the the environment. So, you know, aging at home is going to become more and more the new normal as well. So I think we're on the verge of a lot of change in this whole space.
1: I think so too. I mean, you know, to go back to talk about what you were saying about like residential communities for older people, that, you know, that those are no longer sort of warehouses to death's waiting room, you know, that mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. this multi-generational model, especially because the definition of, of family has evolved so much over the last 20, 30 years, right? What What constitutes a family and a family of choice versus a family of origin? So I think that, that living model—it makes good sense.
4: Yeah, I think that this—this this was the generation, uh, the older boomers were the generation that. We're first um, talking about communes and living in communes. Yes. So let's bring back the commune in a different constituted form. Yes. Yeah, my fantasy is to live in a big compound with all my friends and a few families thrown in and, you know, have a really great time. So let's think about new ways of of creating communities that can do that.
1: I am with you. We have a joke uh, around our place that everybody should, like, have their own Airstream with a hammock you know, <laughs> with a, with a communal lodge and kitchen. Yeah.
4: yeah perfect. <laughs> <You know? laughs> perfect. Yeah. I agree. I hear you. I hear you.
1: Well, what, what good fun this has been. We've been talking with Michael Clinton today. His book is roar into the second half of your life before it's too late to learn more about his work. Please go to roar by Michael on Twitter at M a Clinton on Facebook roar by Michael Clinton and on Instagram roar, Michael Clinton. come back hang out. Let's talk more about like growing young or growing old fashionably (laughs) because
4: this is good fun. Yeah. Thank you so much. It's been great fun. I've really enjoyed it. And we're going to be actually launching the ROAR newsletter in January. So you can sign up on roarbymichaelclinton.com.
1: Wonderful. Thank you, Michael. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness today. This is Lisa Cypress-Kamen on behalf of my guests, Professor Karen Cerullo, Professor Janet Ruon, and Michael Clinton, wishing you kind thoughts, kinder words, and the kindest of actions. Until next time, remember, happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. Please go out and rock your day and remember to be kind to one another.
0: Keep harvesting your own happiness anytime and anywhere from the comfort of wherever you are. Subscribe, listen, and share hundreds of downloadable episodes via our free app or from our libraries at toginet.com, iTunes, Google Play, and other fine podcast platforms. To learn more about Lisa's global consulting services, please visit harvestinghappiness.com. Spread more joy by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and following Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen. Harvesting Happiness is produced in collaboration with Toginet Radio, kbuyu.radiomalibu.net, and is available on PRX, the Public Radio Exchange.